life. And this morning, as we continue with Lesson 10 in our current Sunday morning series, Revolution, Christ Over Culture, we're going to find in looking at the narrative of Acts in the 8th chapter, the entire 40 verses of the 8th chapter, we're going to find that this was so similar to the case for the followers of Jesus. They had totally been thrown a curveball, as we would say in life, but and in their, in their relationship with Jesus and in their ministry that they were called to, they were totally thrown a curveball. Things are happening that they never perceived would be the case. But nonetheless, they find themselves rising to their feet and continuing the uh, proclamation of the gospel. And I want to look in as much detail as time will allow this morning at not only what they did, but why they did it. As we examine the 8th chapter of Acts, I want to preface this uh, lesson with letting you know that typically when we study Acts, we would just kind of read over the 8th chapter and see that uh, maybe it's got some content, but it's really a chapter that we typically ignore and give no, little to no attention to. But I believe that within the 8th chapter, there's an incredible amount of content. And furthermore, I believe that there's no portion of Scripture that is just kind of there by accident or just there for busy reading. I believe everything from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 plays an integral and an important role in us understanding God's redemptive process. We're going to look at some incredible content in chapter 8 that's oftentimes overlooked, and we're going to see this in light of the heels of the seventh chapter, the heels of the martyrdom of Stephen. Now, if you remember the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, uh, there had been some instances of persecution. There had been some instances where the work of the church and the work of the Holy Spirit through the church was not always perceived well by the outside world, specifically by the leaders of Judaism. Now, until this point, and actually we have several chapters to go before this transition occurs, but at, at this point, Christianity is still viewed as another sect of Judaism. I've explained to you that Judaism in the first century was divided four ways, essentially the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. And now Christianity, the followers of Jesus, the perceived Messiah in their minds, and we perceive him as the Messiah as well, just to clarify, but uh, this, this movement was dubbed another sect or another division, another denomination, if you will, of Judaism. So as this movement continues to grow, it poses a threat to Jewish leaders. And they have to kind of stand back and scratch their head and figure out what's going on here. The two instances of persecution that we've seen prior to the stoning of Stephen have been just that. It has been, it's been an effort from the Jewish leaders to somehow grasp and contain this movement known as Christianity, this revolution, if you will, known as Christianity. But things changed drastically in the seventh chapter. I've told you in this lesson prior that until this point, until the stoning of Stephen, the movement of Christianity, the revolution of Christianity has not been perceived as a credible threat. But something happened in the seventh chapter. We saw that the church was just growing by leaps and bounds and continuously. And then all of a sudden, you know, everybody had been staying in Jerusalem. Not all of a sudden, but to back up, everybody had been staying in Jerusalem. They'd been there like six months after the first New Testament Pentecost, after the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And they're staying in Jerusalem and all these incredible things are happening. They've went from 120 believers to like 5,000 plus believers. And then they start to have some internal 
confusion and some internal division. And certain widows were, uh, were overlooked in the daily distribution of food, the seventh chapter tells us. So some of the disciples stand up and they say, you know what, this is a valid concern. This is a valid uh, uh, observation that we must make and we must repair. This is definitely a fracture in our structure. But we, as the leaders of the church, must focus on preaching the gospel and not doing these things. So they added structure, a, a strong element of structure, of architectural ingenuity to the church spiritually, if you will. And they call these men together and they ordain these men and they say, we want you to be in charge of this service of feeding those who are hungry. One of these men, the scripture tells us, was named Stephen. Now Stephen, the, the scripture shines a spotlight. As Luke is writing, he shines a spotlight on Stephen's life, his integrity and his personality, and most specifically his relationship with Jesus. And he's described as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And I can kind of picture Stephen being this kind of guy. He's scooping out the mashed potatoes, he's scooping out the soup and the roast beef and all this stuff, whatever they were serving in the food kitchen line. But he was all the while focused on Jesus. His conversation was, let me tell you how good Jesus is. And all this sounds incredible, but it eventually would cost Stephen his life. The seventh chapter accounts for us that he had an interaction with men who were from the synagogue of the freedmen. And they didn't like Stephen's uh, zealousness. They didn't like his passion. They didn't like his, uh, his words that he chose and the way he perceived Jesus to be the Messiah. And there was just a little bit of an, an abrasive moment between Stephen and these group of Jewish people. And that little bit of an abrasive moment didn't just kind of die out, but rather it further intensified. And we read in the seventh chapter how Stephen has tried for his words before council and then later on things get really rough because they question Stephen and Stephen just stands and boldly declares the gospel of Jesus and the scripture tells us that the Jewish men who were trying him, who were listening to him were so filled with furious anger that they just grit their teeth, they were so angry they were gritting their teeth and they rushed upon him and they threw him down and long story short they stoned him to death and we end the seventh chapter with the martyrdom of Stephen. Now now, all the followers of Jesus, Stephen's spiritual brothers and sisters, would have never in their wildest dreams perceived this would be the next occurrence on their radar. This would be the next thing on their chronology of life events following Jesus. They thought following Jesus was just going to be incredibly good things. But now all of a sudden, they lose one of their very own brand new beloved leaders, not for any wrongdoing, but rather for his commitment and steadfastness to declare that Jesus truly was the Messiah. So just kind of keep in your mind and get in your mind the mentality, the things, the thoughts, and the ideologies that would have been, the ideas that would have been going through their minds in this time as, they, as they've literally watched Stephen die. And the scripture ends at the seventh chapter telling us that devout men went and got the body of Stephen and they carried him away and they made loud lamentation over his death. They were absolutely entirely brokenhearted. As we end the seventh chapter and we move on into the eighth chapter, there's a quick spotlight transition. And actually transitions twice. And I want to tell you about this. The first thing or the first individual the spotlight transitions to is away from Stephen and it kind of shines on this man who is believed to be or presented to us to be the ring leader of those who stoned Stephen to death. He is soon to be an incredible Incredible influential part of the church. But at this point,
point in time, he is one of the most wicked, vile, hateful men that we encounter in all of Scripture. His name is Saul. And he's filled with a... With a, with a with a fueled animosity towards those who are preaching the gospel of Jesus. Now, I don't have time to make this argument today, but two weeks from today, we're going to look at this in detail. And I'm telling you, you don't want to miss this. I don't think that Saul's interaction with Jesus supernaturally on the road to Damascus was Saul's first interaction with Jesus. I don't believe that for a moment. And in a couple weeks, I want to tell you why I believe that. But I believe Saul was there at the, at the very first trip trial Jesus had after his arrest just shy of his crucifixion. And there are some things that happened in that conversation that would have really put a personal element behind what Saul did and oversaw in regards to the death and the stoning of Stephen. Stop and think about this for a minute. I've been mad at a lot of people in my past, and you've been mad at a lot of people. Maybe you're mad at somebody this morning, or maybe somebody's mad at you. But you've probably never been so angry, and if you have, nobody knows about it, or else you'd be in prison for life. But you've probably never been so angry that you've said, Hey guys, let's go get a bunch of rocks and stone this guy to death, merely at the words that an individual spoke. But yet, that is what happened to Stephen. Now you say, Pastor, but Stephen was a threat to Jewish religion, right? Let me just kind of give this ideology to you that Jewish religion is kind of, for lack of better terms, and I say this casually, but built upon arguments. That's how you arrive to the truth, or so is the concept within Judaism, is you argue your way through the truth. What about this? What about that? And remember how they described Jesus as being one who spoke of authority, not as the other rabbis who would quote this conversation or this church leader. And that is a reference to that ideology, how that things were kind of built around arguments and debates. And so here's a guy that just kind of comes up with something new, and so, or so he's perceived. And, and th- this had not been an uncommon event within Judaism in the first century. There's no reason why Saul and his followers would have just been so angry at that one message of Stephen, but rather there is a, there's a strong personal element that is feeding Paul's animosity. But I want to talk about that in a few weeks, but we don't have time to get there just yet today. But nonetheless, Nonetheless, with all that set aside, just as a teaser in your brain, nonetheless, Saul's, uh, he is. He is now perceived by the church as an existential threat. Prior to this moment, yes, there was a risk that they would be arrested like they were previously and a risk that they'd be arrested again like they were previously, but that was all that they'd known as far as persecution goes. But at this moment, the church now perceives an existential threat. That means there is truly an existing threat. There is something that is after us that wants to destroy us, that is possibly going to kill us. We saw Stephen bleed to death as he stoned and we carried his body out. We buried him and we're crying and we're mourning, but there is definitely a, an existential, truly existing threat against the church. And this morning, I want to examine the church's response, that beloved, incredible, encouraging response that the church gives to us in Acts chapter 8 as we transition the spotlight now from Stephen and now from Saul, now to the reaction of the believers in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Saul was in a hearty agreement with putting uh, Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. 
And notice that. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria with the exception of the apostles. So if I may pause there, what's happening is all the other believers are running away, but the 12 disciples, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, Bartholomew, Simon, Judas, not Iscariot, James, John, and Matthias, they said, we will stay here at Jerusalem and we'll hide out here in Jerusalem, but all the rest of you go back home and go hide and let's try to figure out you know, what, what in the world's happening here. Verse 2, some devout men buried Stephen, and they made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began, or continued, I would say, to ravage the church, entering from house to house and dragging off men and women who were of the way, and he would put them in the prison. But yet we see that there is no... There is no cessation of the preaching of the gospel. We're going to see this morning that the believers continued in the work that Jesus had given them to do. They continued in the purpose that they were called to do. And let's stop and think about this in this light for a moment. You know, the greatest miracle when we face times of opposition, when we face times of tribulation, when we face storms and trials in life, when it seems like life is just falling apart, the greatest miracle in that time is not... Not the miracle that we typically pray for in those moments. The miracle we typically pray for in those moments is some type of miraculous cessation of that opposition. Some type of miraculous cessation of those trials, of that storm, and all those difficulties that we face in life. But I want to present to you this morning, as we'll find in Acts chapter 8 and laced all through the scripture and various other stories, I want to present to you that the greatest miracle in times of opposition, in times of difficulties, and in times times of trial is not a divine cessation of that opposition or that trial, but rather the greatest miracle is when God supernaturally empowers you to continue the cause that he called you to in spite of all that opposition, in spite of that trial, in spite of the fierce storm, and in spite of every single thing that you're facing. After all, we're seeing the narrative of Acts in the light of the revolution that it truly was. And let me ask you this question rhetorically this morning. Is there any revolutionary movement within all of history that is not hinged upon and characterized by the fearless pursuit of the cause that those who are part of the revolution believed in so much they were willing to sell their life for every single revolution throughout history is hinged upon the fact and characterized by the fact of the followers, the leaders of that revolution being fearlessly pursuant of the cause that they had deemed revolutionary. And this is exactly what has happened in the midst of this incredible persecution of the first century church. Stephen simply for declaring the gospel of Jesus, is now stoned to death. There's so much anger, there's so much hatred, there's so much animosity. I believe this man named Saul, and we'll talk about this more in detail in a few weeks, but I believe this man named Saul was just kind of hiding out behind the shadows, but yet he was a, a, a very prominent religious figure, within, religious figure within Judaism in his day. But he had kind of been hiding out behind the shadows, but he had finally seen and heard enough, and he could not 
contain his anger any longer, and that anger became contagious. And can I pause the message for a moment and tell you that your attitude, no matter how good it is nor how bad it is, is contagious. So when you walk into church with a chip on your shoulder and say, I think we ought to do things this way or that way, or, uh, and, and I hope nobody walked in that way this morning. If you did, I don't know about it. But uh, we shouldn't do that but because those attitudes become contagious. But we should rather be people who declare, this is the day that the Lord has made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. For better is one day in His courts than a thousand elsewhere. And as David would say on another occasion, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God, just the lowest of all positions, than whatever else my mind could possibly fathom or imagine. But yet that type of attitude is just as contagious as an attitude of negativity. Saul's attitude of animosity and anger had become contagious and he had a group of people around him who had basically said, yes, let's do this. But yet it was so contradictory to Jewish law. We're going to talk about that in a few, in a few weeks, but not quite yet today. This revolutionary movement has now met existential threat, existential opposition, something they could not ignore and that now would be a determining factor in every decision that they would make. Now we see that these disciples make the right decision. We're going to see it in the fifth verse that uh, in Acts chapter 8 verse 5 that it actually tells us that as everybody is dispersed and everybody goes about back to their home places or hiding out in bunkers or wherever they're at, as they go about and yet the, the, the original 12 had said we're going to stay here in Jerusalem, they begin to move about too. And verse 5 actually tells us that Philip is the first of the 12 to leave and he goes down to the city of Samaria and he begins to weep and cry and mourn for everything that went wrong, right? No, the scripture says he went down to Samaria and he began to preach the gospel. How can an individual who is facing the possibility of death because of their actions to preach the gospel and they've literally just watched someone give his life in martyrdom for the same message, how could that individual find the steadfastness and the courage and the boldness to continue on declaring the gospel of Jesus? I believe that these 12 men, because they had walked with Jesus for some three plus years, I believe they had already experienced things and witnessed things and been there for certain life-changing events that they had already learned this lesson long before the existential threat of persecution was posed to them. Let's take a moment and go back to Mark chapter 4 this morning. We see there an incredible event recorded by Mark, and it's actually recorded by Matthew and Luke as well. But I want to look at Mark's account this morning. Of the disciples, after one of Jesus' great teaching crusades, there had been multitudes of people around, but yet Jesus said, here we are at the seashore, let's get in the boat and let's go to the other side. Chapter 4 at verse 35, let us go to the other side. Verse 36, they left the crowd and they took Jesus along with them in the boat just as he was. And the other boats began to follow them. And there arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus himself was in the stern, fast asleep on a cushion. And yet they woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to 
the sea hush and be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, who is this man that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now this, we're going we're gonna to transition into the fifth chapter in a moment, but I want to put in your mind that this experience specifically, along with others, were motivating factors because of what they learned in their walk with Jesus. This was a motivating factor to cause them to continue to preach and proclaim the gospel in spite of all the opposition and the threats that they were faced with. You see, trials and trauma can be very disheartening and very disorienting. We can go through life, and I've been to this point, point. I know that many, if not all of you, have been to this point. And if you say, Pastor, I've never experienced what I'm fixing to, to uh, describe to you, then just buckle up because you're probably going to experience it at some point in time. It's pretty much guaranteed. Man that's born of woman is few days and full of trouble, right? In this world, you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Jesus said, I've overcome the world. But there will be times when we face trials and trauma and tribulations that totally dishearten and disorient us. Have you ever been to that point where you thought life was going so good, maybe situations that you were concerned about were going so good, and all of a sudden things change so drastically, and then you're just totally knocked off your feet, much like this pandemic has done to our church body and the incredible place that we're at, and then just all of a sudden we're just left asking ourselves the question, God, what on earth is going on here? What are you up to, and how can we find it out? Trauma, trials, tribulation leave us disheartened, and they leave us disorienting. But as we progress into the fifth chapter, and I believe in the, in the book of Acts in chapter 7 and 8 that the disciples who stayed there in Jerusalem were remembering this event because as we progress from Jesus calming the storm into what happened right after he calmed the storm, things really start to get incredible. You mean the fact that Jesus would have stood up on the sea, uh, up on the boat in the middle of a raging sea when the disciples literally perceived we are going to die. Today, this storm is going to sink our ship and we're going to drown. We're going to die. It's going to be over. But here comes Jesus and he stands on the boat and he says, Peace be still. And just like that, everything ceases and it becomes calm. You mean that's not miracle enough? Listen to what happens as we progress into the fifth chapter. They go right on over to the other side of the sea and they park the boat there and all the disciples are just man. They're in absolute, total, complete awe. They said, Who is this dude that even the wind and the seas obey him. He just walked out here and saved our life by speaking three little words. Who on earth is this guy? And they parked the ship at the other shore, on the opposite side. Remember, Jesus did not say, let's go and get in the middle of a storm and drown and die. But what did he say when they got in the boat? He said, let us go to the other side. There's a purpose in mind, a divine purpose in the mind of God for what's happening. And you may be in a storm, you may, may be in a trial, you may be in a very difficult spot, but I can promise you, as Romans eight twenty eight promises, we know that he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You can cling to that promise that he did not call you into the middle of a stormy sea so that you may drown and die, but rather he has called you through that and there is purpose on the other side of your storm. Mark chapter 5, they parked the boat. 
They dock the boat. And they're at the country of the Gergesenes or the Gadarenes. And Jesus gets off the boat. Now, we don't know this exactly for sure, but we think about the place where the boat would have docked was probably at the edge of a great ravine. And this great ravine would have been very difficult to pass through. Actually, some things that I've read and studied said that it was actually deemed by everybody as absolutely impassable. But Jesus gets off the boat there and he walks through this ravine and his 12 disciples are following him. And man, they're like, hey, can you believe we just experienced that? I thought we were going to die, all this stuff. And they're just not really paying attention to their environment and they're walking up. And then they get to the top of the ravine and there was a cemetery there. And as if that's not odd enough, there's a guy living in the cemetery because nobody else could do anything with him within society. He had been bound with chains and he would break them loose and he was an absolute nuisance. The scripture tells us in Matthew's account in chapter 8 and in Mark's account in chapter 5 and in Luke's account as well, many details about this man, but we know that he was demon-possessed and he was so mentally, uh, mentally ill, for lack of better words, and spiritually ill, that he would not even wear clothes. And he ran around naked in the graveyard. And so after seeing Jesus steal the storm, after walking through this ravine, the disciples walk up on top of the hill, and they see there in that cemetery a naked man running around with chains on his arms that he's broken loose. And he runs to Jesus, and he falls on his face, and he says, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Most High Son of God? And Jesus begins to work with this individual. And to make a long story short, he cast out what had been tormenting this guy. And this guy, the next transition of spotlight in this story, tells us that everybody in the town began to hear about this. And there's rumor going around. Did you hear that this Jesus of Nazareth healed the guy that we exiled to the tombs, to the cemetery? And something's going on. And they all come out to look at him. And this guy who was originally running naked through the graveyard, the scripture says he's sitting there, he's fully clothed, and he is in his right mind. Had the disciples given up in the middle of the storm, had they given up when everything looked like it was certain death that stood in front of them, they would have never experienced the opportunity of witnessing and being involved in the transformation of this otherwise hopeless individual. Both the persecution of Acts 7 and the, the storm of, of Mark chapter 4 and 5 led the followers of Jesus to present the gospel to otherwise unlikely candidates. Did you notice where Philip went? In Acts chapter 8 at verse 5, to Samaria. He goes to Samaria. Pastor, what kind of significance is the fact that the Scripture would denote for us that Philip goes to Samaria? You remember as we studied Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, that the Samaritans were deemed, uh, they, they were deemed unworthy by the Jews. And you say, but Pastor, isn't the Gospel for all? Yes, it is. But at the 8th chapter of the book of Acts, there had been no Gentile inclusion. This movement was strictly perceived to be just for the Jews only. And Philip is persecuted. Everybody is persecuted. But Philip goes to Samaria and he begins to declare the gospel of Jesus to the Samaritans. Just like that naked, demon-possessed man who was exiled to the cemetery on the edge of town was an unlikely candidate. The people that Philip would now preach to in Acts chapter 8 were totally unlikely candidates. And nobody else would have ever otherwise thought, let's go to Samaria and preach the gospel. Had there not been vast, vehement persecution that caused that to happen. Philip goes to Samaria. He preaches the gospel. 
Just like the followers of Jesus went to Gadara and they met that man there and saw his life transformed. These trials, these difficulties, these situations, this opposition led both parties of followers of Jesus to preach to those who were unlikely candidates. Philip would then proceed to Gaza where he would meet an Ethiopian eunuch who was a servant of the queen Candace. This Ethiopian eunuch was sitting in his chariot and he was, he was uh, you know, ignoring his chauffeur. Just kind of imagine the limousine chariot driver has the little divider up and the Ethiopian eunuch is just trying to perceive the book of Isaiah the prophet. I think Chris mentioned it earlier. And he's trying to perceive that and he says, I can't understand it. And Philip comes up in his chariot with him in his big limousine chariot. You know, he's the servant of the queen Candace. And, and Philip says, can I help you? And he said, how can I understand this? Unless someone explains it to him. And Philip says, let me explain explain. And the eunuch is converted. If you don't know what a eunuch is, then uh, uh, see Daniel Perry after church. I'll let him explain it to you. But the eunuch is converted and, and the eunuch becomes a Christian. And he says, can I be baptized? Is there water right here? What is hindering me from being baptized? And Philip says, let me baptize you. And then all of a sudden, Philip is carried away. And he goes now to Azotus and then to Caesarea. And the scripture actually denotes in Acts chapter 8 that he preached the gospel in all cities in between. I believe that he perceived something that is hidden for us in our English Bibles. But when we look exegetically at the scripture in Acts chapter 8, we see what God was really doing with this terrible, difficult situation of persecution and martyrdom. If you remember in Acts chapter 8, we saw that the disciples who had been living in Jerusalem were now dispersed abroad. We saw this word in chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, the great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. The word is repeated again in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Now, this is the same word in the Greek, and in the Greek, it is the word diaspiro. And we get the English word dispersion from this word. But diaspiro doesn't necessarily just mean to scatter, but it is derived, strongly derived from another Greek word, which gives the ideology of a farmer going out and scattering seeds of wheat or grain or whatever it may be into the ground. I believe that Philip, along with the entirety, the, the remainder of the church, had perceived that what was happening to the church was not detrimental but rather God placing them and replacing their territory in order to scatter the word of God abroad. I don't think it's accident that Luke uses this word to describe what had happened in the narrative of Acts. You say, but pastor, how in the world can we find it within ourselves to remain so faithful that in the midst of persecution, in the midst of dilemmas, in the midst of opposition, that we can continue to preach the gospel, even if it's in a totally different territory than we ever imagined. How? You know, I don't know about you, but I don't question the faithfulness of God far as much as I question my own faithfulness. And maybe you say, how? And I know for some of you who are in ministry and for other pastors that I know are in this season of difficulty with everything in this post-pandemic world that we're living in and we're asking ourselves this question, how? And I know that so many are just 
saturated in discouragement. I mean, for me personally, I question how can we study the narrative of the book of Acts where literally every leading character gives his life for the cause and yet in the society we live in today, we abandon attending church and working in ministry because there's a possibility that we might catch a virus that we might die from. There are two polar opposites, whether you are on one side of the political fence or not. There are polar opposite ideologies between us and the leaders of the book of Acts. But we ask ourselves the question, how? How can we procure faithfulness in the lives of individuals and in my own life when it seems like everything around us has just kind of crumbled and fallen apart? And maybe it has nothing to do with the pandemic. Maybe it's a personal situation you're in this morning. And you say, Pastor, I feel the same identical way. I don't know how I'm going to be faithful when everything in my life has just crumbled. Remember the man Saul. In the next few weeks, we're going to see Saul's divine conversion, his miraculous conversion, that transformation from being an individual who absolutely hated the church and had set aside to destroy the church to the one who would literally give his life for the building of the body of Christ. After his conversion, many years after, He pins some powerful words in his letter to the Philippians that answer the questions ever so eloquently and dynamically that we have just asked ourselves in today's lesson. How can I remain faithful when it seems like life is crumbling, falling apart? I know God is faithful, but how can I be faithful when nothing else Seems to be steadfast. Paul said it like this, Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. My brothers, I do not count myself having already apprehended. But this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me and reaching toward what lies ahead. Here's an individual willingly imprisoned for the gospel of Jesus, writing absolute theological masterpieces such as the book of Romans. If anybody had the right and the rationale to say, I have this figured out, it was the Apostle Paul. But yet in his writing to the Philippian church, he says, I do not consider myself to have apprehended. I have not figured this out. And just a free disclaimer, free commercial, if the Apostle Paul could say, hey, I've not figured this out, then none of us have the right nor the rationale to say we have figured it out. He said, but this is what I'm doing. I'm forgetting everything that's behind. I'm reaching toward what's before me. But I've not yet laid hold of it or apprehended it. That word in the Greek that we translate apprehended or laid hold of it is katalambano. Katalambano means to seize, as if you were seizing, uh, perhaps from a governmental perspective, seizing one's property and making it your own. It is that legal terminology to describe the transaction between a piece of property, between a buyer and a seller. And Paul says, I have not yet apprehended it. But hold on a minute. Let's back up to verse 12. The preceding verse where we will see... Catalambano again in a different light. Not that I'd already obtained it 
or not that I'd already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold, Catalambano, of that which I was also lay hold, Catalambano, by Christ. You see, Paul says, I don't have it yet. I don't completely have a grip on this and have all this figured out. And I'm sure in his highly intellectual mind, that was a great desire of his. He said, but here's what I know. While I have not seized it all, I know that he has completely seized me. I have been apprehended. I've not apprehended, but I am apprehended. And now I'm trying to grasp that which has apprehended me. So whether it's on the day of Pentecost, when thousands of people become converted, whether it's in instances where lame beggars are healed, like we see in Acts chapter 3, and whether it's in instances when God moves in incredible, dynamic, miraculous manners, or whether it's in instances when people are stoned to death merely because they proclaim the gospel, the followers of Jesus in the book of Acts perceive the same ideology that Paul lays out to the Philippian church. They said, we are captivated. We are held. We are apprehended. By the gospel. So no matter what goes on around us, it doesn't change the fact that we're apprehended. We are absolutely stuck in a good way. Because it's not about what we're holding on to as life rages. But it's about He who is holding on to us as life rages. It's not about what we're holding on to. His life rages, but it's about He who is holding us. His life rages around us. I want to ask you this morning, if you're here and you say, Pastor, I've, I've faced a personal battle and a personal struggle. I want to ask you today, are you truly, entirely, completely trusting Him? I know it's difficult. I've had some things going on in regards to the sale of our home this week. That I've just had to trust God in just completely, blindly, and nothing I could do other than trust Him. And I know it's difficult. And I know that in other situations that some of you all face in, in your daily lives that it's incredibly difficult. And as the old adage is, it's easier said than done. But yet still I ask you this morning, are you completely, entirely trusting in Him? And on a broad spectrum, I want to ask you as my brothers and sisters, in the issue of recovery from this pandemic for the church as a whole, are we trusting the concept that perhaps things will return to normal? Are we trusting God to reveal to us His biblical blueprint for what we are to do? I'm going to say this, we're going to pray, and I'm going to be done. Never once in the midst of this dispersion did the followers of Jesus, the leaders or the workers of the early church, never once did they say, we're going to hide out, and everything gets better and returns to normal, we'll go back to preaching the gospel. But they continued steadfastly preaching the gospel. And I don't know about you, but that's what I want to be said of me in this time. And I pray likewise, such is the case. For all of us, would you stand as we pray together this morning? Father, we are again thankful.